It is my prayer <laughs> to be done by Christmas. But we have to leave things open to the Lord. <laughs> it's like, that's how you hedge your bets, right? <laughs> Job chapter 3. You all are looking at Job in the New King James Version. Today I want to read um, Job chapter 3 from the Message Bible. So you can listen to me as, as I read it. It reads, Then Job broke his silence. He spoke up and cursed his fate. Obliterate the day I was born. Blank out the night I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened, erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed by the night. In the night of my conception, let the devil take it. Rip the date off the calendar and delete it from the almanac. Oh, turn that night into pure nothingness. No sounds of pleasure from that night ever. May those who are good at cursing curse that day. Unleash the sea beast, Leviathan, on it. May its morning stars turn to black cinders, waiting for a daylight that never comes, never once seeing the first light of dawn. And why? Because it released me from my mother's womb and into a life with so much trouble. Why didn't I die at birth, my first breath out of the womb being my last? Why were there arms to rock me and breasts for me to drink from? I could be resting in peace right now, asleep forever, feeling no pain in the company of kings and statements, statesmen in their royal ruins or with princes resplendent in their gold and silver tombs. Why wasn't I stillborn and buried with all the babies who never saw light, where the wicked no longer trouble anyone, and bone-weary people get a long-deserved rest. Prisoners sleep undisturbed, never again to wake up to the, to the bark of the guards. The small and the great are equal in that place, and slaves are free from their masters. Why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Why bother keeping bitter people alive? Those who want in the worst way to die and can't, who, keep, who can't imagine anything better than death, who count the day of their death and burial the happiest day of their life. What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense, when God blocks all the roads to meaning? Instead of bread, I get groans for my supper, then leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I've dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered, my peace destroyed. No rest for me ever. Death has invaded life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us another opportunity to come into your presence and to be able to hear your word. I pray, Lord, as we are looking at Job's lament, I pray that you would help us um, to, to see and hear his agony but, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to see uh, that his lament is in the context of trusting you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to 
be able to learn how to lament ourselves, how to, to be able to bring all of our groans and our pains to you so that even in tragedy and even in our suffering, we learn to draw closer to you. We thank you now for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to use the, uh, the title, When Death Seems Like My Best Options. I want to start off by reading the first two pages from D.A. Carson's book, How Long, O Lord? And this uh, book, the subtitle is Reflections on Suffering and Evil. And, and I think he does a, a good job here of pointing up what it feels like to suffer in this world. He says, a pastor is cutting his front lawn. He looks up from his task just in time to see a heavy dump truck back out of his neighbor's, neighbor's driveway, right over the neighbor's 18-month-old son, who had been squatting behind the huge tires. The pastor accompanies the hysterical mother and ashen father to the hospital in the ambulance. There is no hope for the little boy. He has been crushed almost beyond recognition. Where is God? After five years of marriage, Jane wakes up in the night to find her husband, Dan, poking her and pointing to his mouth. As she hauls herself out of sleep, she realizes that her husband has awakened to find that he cannot speak and is badly frightened. A quick phone call to the doctor issues in a swift trip to the hospital. The next day, the surgeons operate for cancer of the brain. They cannot get much of it. The trauma of the surgery is worse. It wipes out all of his memory. Dan no longer knows how to read and write. He cannot recognize his infant son, yet somehow the operation has administered such a shock that the cancer stops growing. Dan's personality, however, has been altered. He is frustrated, angry, irritable, and needs someone to watch him 24 hours a day. After three years of minimal recovery, the cancer starts its insidious growing again and kills Dan four months later. Where is God? A rural family with six children, four of them hemophiliacs, serve the Lord with joy and discipline. Then the AIDS crisis hits. Unknown to doctors and patients alike, the nation's blood supply is contaminated. The four hemophiliacs must constantly tap into that supply. Two contract AIDS and are dead within three years. The third has tested HIV positive. It is only a matter of time before the patient exhibits clinical symptoms, suffers, and dies. The fourth, age 30, himself the father of three, has refused to be tested, but he knows that the chances are overwhelming that he too is a carrier and that he will shortly leave his wife a widow and his children fatherless. He has almost no insurance and no insurer will now give him the time of day. Where is God? I wish I could say I made up these stories. I didn't. They are about people I know. Only names and minor details have been changed, and all of us could tell our own stories. 
A colleague of mine and his wife served as foster parents for close to three decades. At one point, they took in twin boys just 18 months old. This was the twins' sixth home. They were judged irreme irre irremediably impaired, wrongly as it turned out. They had been battered by, for crying in at least two homes, with the result that they, when they went to bed the first night in their new home, they wept themselves to sleep without making a sound. Where was God? And then, of course, there are highly public catastrophes. Terrorists flying airplanes into the World Trade Towers and into the Pentagon. The deaths of almost 3,000 people are somehow made more shocking by the sight on television of people leaping from the 95th floor to escape the flames fed by jet fuel, by the spectacle of 100-floor structures collapsing on themselves. A tsunami of gigantic proportions caused by shifting plates in the ocean floor off the coast of Assei in northwest, in, in northwest Indonesia causes horrific damage in several countries and kills about 300,000 men, women, and children. Where is God? The truth of the matter is that all we have to do is live long enough and we all will suffer. Our loved ones will die. We ourselves will be afflicted with some disease or other. Midlife often brings its own pressures, disappointments, sense of failure, decreasing physical strength, infidelity. Parents frequently go through enormous heartache in re rearing their children. My own mother was mugged at the age of 72. As a result, she fell and hit her head on the curb. Her family noticed mental deterioration and personality change within weeks. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and went through all the predictable stages of that wretched disease. She died nine years later. Live long enough and the affirmities of old age eventually catch up with you, compounded by the fact that all your friends have gone and left you alone. And these things represent the suffering that takes place in relatively stable societies. Add war, racism, genocide, grinding poverty, starvation, even television does not adequately portray the reality. The first thing to assault me on my first trip to a really poor third world country is the stench. There is now a vast literature on the Holocaust in which six million Jews were systematically exterminated. Much of this literature treats the Holocaust as an aberration, a singularity that we must never permit to happen again, a horrific brutality that destroys meaning. We are told that we must not compare it with other orgies of violence lest we trivialize it. Yet the sad truth is far worse. In the 20th century alone, it is only one of a string of similar holocausts. Already 40 million people worldwide are infected with HIV. How many will die depends on how long it will take to develop an effective vaccine. But since there are about 5 million new infections every year, even the most conservative estimates put the total number who will die from AIDS in the tens of millions. 20 to 50 million Chinese died under Chairman Mao. The same percentage of Cambodians died under Pol Pot as Jews under Hitler. We do not know how many Soviet citizens died under Stalin but most historians put the number of Ukrainian deaths alone at about 20 million. 
the suffering inflicted by Idi Amin is incalculable, and almost a million Hutus and Tutsis were slaughtered in Rwanda. What shall we say about natural disasters? Each year, hundreds of thousands die from starvation. Millions suffer from malnutrition. 25,000 died in the earthquake in Mexico City. 200,000 perished in a similar disaster in China. That is two-thirds of the deaths in the more recent tsunami. And how many so-called natural disasters, especially starvation, are the result of uncontrollable natural forces such as drought, and how many stem in part from evil structures that human beings have created? Despotic governments, tribal warfare, unfair trading practices, and unqualified avarice. In all, in any and all of these tragedies, in all of this pain, where is God? Now, I think that D.A. Carson in just the first two pages of his book really sums up what human suffering looks like, what we don't like to look at, what we as Americans get to turn our heads away from each and every day, but what the rest of the world has to suffer with every moment of every day. And I'm sure that there are many people who continue to ask the same question, where is God? Sometimes it seems that we are left to endure all of our suffering all by ourselves. And sometimes in the midst of our pain, we want to cry out like Jesus did on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oftentimes we feel in our pain, that even God has left us alone. And sometimes we experience grief so deep that we think that death is our best option. And I believe that this is where we meet Job in Job chapter 3. If you remember in Job chapter 1, Job has lost all of his possessions, he has lost all of his servants, and he has lost all of his children. And this must have been a tremendous blow to Job, but yet, through worship, Job was able to maintain his faith, hope, and love in God. Remember, he says, naked I came out of the womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, it appears that some time has passed between chapter 1 and chapter 2. We aren't sure how much time has passed, but... In chapter 2, we learn that Job is now experiencing failing health. It appears that um, <coughs> Job has developed boils that go from the bottom of his feet all the way to the top of his head. Painful boils. And his skin has become so rough that he has to take pottery to scrape himself, and then he sits in his own ashes. And in the midst of all of this, it appears as if even God is not even speaking to him. Where is God? Imagine Job's, ang Job's anguish. Every step hurts. 
Imagine not being able to be hugged or high-fived without pain. Imagine Job's social and emotional isolation as people walk by and stare at him, but they say nothing because he's covered in boils that sometimes burst and ooze pus all over him. Imagine how Job must have smelled. Now imagine that the person who has promised to love you, comfort you, honor and keep you in sickness and in health, so long as they live, just turns to you and says, why don't you just curse God and die? (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I know about myself. I would not have responded the way Job responded. Now, I probably would have responded with his first statement where he says, woman, you sound like one of the foolish women. And my my statement would have stopped there, okay? Uh, But Job says, you sound like one of the foolish women speak. He says, should not we accept good from God and accept adversity? So Job, in this time, even though he was in pain, even though he was isolated, even though he experienced um, 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 the pain of even his wife saying, why don't you just curse God and die? Look, I want a new husband. (laughs) Even in spite of all of that, Job was able to maintain his faith, hope, and love in God. But that's chapters one um, one and two. (laughs) Chapters one and two display Job as a spiritual warrior and able to endure and persevere through his trials. He was able, if I'm able to bring in our uh, uh, message from James, he was able to count it all joy as he went through various trials. If you remember that from James chapter one, verse three. But in Job chapter three, We meet a spiritually exhausted Job. We experience a Job who had been suffering for weeks or months or maybe even years. We don't know how long Job had been suffering. But the length of Job's trial is now causing Job to move to his breaking point. And now he begins to complain and to cry out to God. And his complaint and his request is very simple. He complains that he did not die at birth, and so he requests that God would take him now. To Job, death seems like rest. I want us to look really at, you can look in the the New King James Version, at Job's statements here so we can see this, this Um, complaint and this request Job chapter 3 verse 20 Job says why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul who long for death but it does not come and who searches for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave Job is complaining that he cannot find death. And so he makes this request, if you look down in verse 11, 
Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There, meaning in the grave, the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. Job was complaining that he did not die at birth. And so Job saw death now as his only recourse for peace and rest from his suffering. The one spiritual Job is now tired and he just wants to rest. He was probably tired of the pain, tired of the isolation and rejection, tired of the memories of his prosperity and the good times that he had with his children. And he just wanted peace. And he saw death not as an enemy, but as relief. Now, I have to admit that I have never, ever, ever um, have experienced tragedy so deep that I felt that death was my only hope. I've, I personally have not. Um, however, since 2006, I have spent innumerable hours in hospitals, hospices, nursing homes, um, rehab facilities, and even in, in, in people's homes. And I have personally laughed, cried, and grieved with hundreds of people in their family who have felt that death was their only option. And so having these numerous conversations with people uh, who were just wanting to be at home with Christ, they just wanted to be at peace in the arms of Jesus, I see what is going on in Job chapter 3 differently than some people. Some people may see that Job is, is just looking at death um, and maybe suicidal. I don't see that here in Job chapter 3. Um, so with my background, I don't see Job's request as something negative. What we have to remember is that three times in the first two chapters of Job, the author of Job says that Job is blameless, upright, he fears God, and he shuns evil. So Job's statements must be seen um, in that context. And in that context, we are looking at someone who's making this request, but this person making the request is doing so in the context of trusting God. So with the time that I have left, and I promise to be brief, um, I want to make several observations about um, Job in Job chapter 3 that I think that will help us when we experience deep moments of grief. Um, we may never uh, experience grief to the point where we want to go home to be with the Lord, um, but all of us are going to experience deep moments of grief. And so what we want to do is, is learn how to use the experience of Job to help us get through our moments of grief and suffering while also maintaining our faith, hope, and love in God. So, number one, the first thing I want us to see about this text is Job is not suicidal. 
Job is not suicidal. Job does not want to take his own life. Job is asking God to release him from his pain. He's not going to take the matters into his own hand. He is asking God to release him from his pain. Job understands that God is the one who has given life and God is the only one who has the right to take life. So Job makes this request because he he knows he himself cannot uh, end his suffering. So in faith, he asks God to bring him to that place. Number two, Job's complaint is an act of faith. Job's complaint is an act of plaint. Com- com- um, of his Job's complaint is an act of faith. Job's complaint is an act of faith. Now, um, one thing is certain, Job complains a lot. Okay? Um, sometimes we all have that friend, right? We're like, oh, Right, they complain, right? Um, Job is that friend, okay? He, he's gotten to that place where, where he is complaining and he complains a lot, okay? If you look at, at, at these, uh, all of the dialogues and Job, when he just talks, you know, if it was me, I would just sit there like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, right? Everybody's being quiet. Y'all all know, y'all know how y'all do. When someone calls you on the phone, you be like, oh, there's going to be a long conversation. And you just put it on, on speaker, and you be doing something, you washing dishes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yup, that's right. You just throw in a couple, couple confirmations every now and again that, that you're still on the line. Okay. So Job complains a lot, right? However, what I want us to see here is that Job complaining about his circumstance is not necessarily a bad thing. See, we think that all complaint is bad. However, that is not what we see here in the book of Job. Sometimes complaining can be an act of faith. Okay. Sometimes complaining can be an act of faith. Dr. Robert Kellerman, my seminary counseling professor, writes in his book, God's Healing for Life's Losses, he writes, Biblical complaint complains to God about the fallen world. Ungodly complaint complains about God and accuses him of lacking goodness, holiness, and wisdom. The way we know if our complaint is biblical or ungodly is if our complaint draws us nearer to God or if our complaint pushes us away from God. You get that? Biblical complaint complains to God about the world, ungodly complaint complains about God and sees him as being unfair. And the only way that we know whether or not we have biblical complaint or ungodly complaint is if our complaint makes us feel closer to God after we complain or if our complaint makes us feel more distant from God. And so that's how we would judge. If you are complaining and your complaint is about the world and your circumstances, but it is drawing you nearer to God, that's biblical complaint. That's good complaint. That is complaining by faith, if you will. Okay. 
And so I, I complain by faith a lot. <laughs> but if your complaint causes you to see God in the wrong way, and it pushes you away from God, it makes you feel distant from God, that's, that's unhealthy complaint. That's complaint that, that is wrong. Now, at this stage in the story of Job, Job is still complaining about his circumstances and not about God. Now, later on, <laughs> we see Job starts to complain about God. But at, at this point, Job is still complaining by faith. He is wrestling with God. He's not wrestling against God. He's wrestling with God in his pain, and he sees God as his ally to help him through it, and he's asking his ally to release him from his pain. So he sees death as a release and God as an ally. Number three, maybe... We as Christians feel so distant from God, especially in times of sorrow, because we don't know how to complain biblically. Right. We know how to complain. (laughs) Okay. Right. Uh, Trust me. I know we know how to complain. But we don't know how to complain biblically. And because we don't know how to complain biblically, we often don't feel close to God. So what we have to do is is wear a mask and pretend that everything is okay, even when it's not. But the truth be told, if we would just be if, if we would have popped the hood and everyone was able to see what's under the hood, many of us struggle with feeling like we're close to God. We come to church and we sing praise and worship. We read the Bible, we do all of the spiritual activities. But we don't feel close to God. And I think that the reason that is, is because we don't know how to complain biblically. What we believe we must do in times of pain, we think that the spiritual thing to do in times of pain is to just grin and bear it. You know, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. Oh, yeah, that's right. Preach it, brother. Okay. Right. We, 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 we go through the motions. We grin and bear it. But the truth is we're in pain and we don't know what to do with it. Now, is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach that when we are going through pain, we should just suck it up? Well, God, I can't do nothing about it. So whatever. To just pretend like I'm not in pain just so I can seem spiritual. Again, Jesus is our best example. On the cross, he complained. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a complaint. Now, if you are like me, you were raised to believe that you could not question God. Jesus questioned his father. Why have you forsaken me? (laughs) David questions God because this is a statement from Psalm 22. Jesus is just quoting from David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David questioned God. So I don't want to say that my parents were wrong, but 
We got examples of people questioning God. And I think that biblical complaint starts with questioning God, as long as you are questioning God by faith. Now, this is what we call lament. Okay, when we talk about complaining, we call this lament. As a matter of fact, there is a whole category of psalms called lament psalms, right? Where the, the whole purpose of the psalm is to complain about what I'm going through. Okay, I want to give you just one um, example. There are lots of lament psalms. There's a lot of lament throughout the Bible. But I want you to turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. And what we're going to do is read Psalm 42 and 43. Um, some um, scholars believe that this was originally one psalm that was split into two. Um, it's possible, right, because the, the, the wording and, and phrasing of, of both psalms are, um, are almost identical. But I want us to look at Psalm 42. This is a lament psalm. Everyone there? Verse 1, we're probably familiar with the first verse. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept the pilgrims feast. Why are you cast down O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Oh, my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and then in the night. His song shall be with me a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to, um, to God, my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your truth, out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp, I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance 
and my God. Now, notice here that the psalmist, right, one of the sons of Korah um, wrote this. The psalmist complains about his situation, right? He complains about his situation. He even questions God because it appears that even God has abandoned him in the midst of oppression and suffering. He questions God. Why, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone? Why are you allowing these enemies to oppress me? Why are you not doing something? But even in his complaint, even in him questioning God because he feels oba- abandoned, he encourages himself by reflecting on God's goodness and reminding himself to hope in God. You see that? He complains. He questions God. But after questioning God, he reminds himself that God has been good to me so far and God will continue to be good to me because God is the same forever, past, present, and future. And he reminds himself, soul, continue to hope and trust and rest in God. That's biblical complaint. Complain about your situation. Question God about your situation. Don't go too far. But question God about your situation. Right? But remind yourself about the goodness of God, how God has been faithful to you. And that will encourage you to hope in God, even though he may not change your circumstance. Now, here's the problem. Most of us don't know how to complain biblically. And so we don't complain and it causes us to feel distance from God. So here's the solution. The solution is that I think that we all as Christians need to spend more time reading, reflecting on and meditating on lament psalms. We all know how to complain but we should meditate on scripture so that we can learn how to complain biblically. And after we have read and and meditated on and spent time learning about these lament psalms and how to complain biblically, then what we need to do is pick up a journal and write our own lament psalms to the Lord. Write out your complaint to the Lord. Write out your questions to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord like the psalmist did. And then end it by reflecting on God's goodness to you and encouraging yourself to rest, hope, and trust in the Lord. And I think that when we do that, what we will learn how to do is is wrestle with God in our pain and not wrestle, fight against God (laughs) in our pain. Wrestle with God, right, over our pain, but not fight against God in our pain. What we will learn how to do is wrestle with God while fighting to hold on to his promises. That's biblical lament. 
what we will ultimately learn how to do is suffer by faith. Now, um, I've given you these th- uh, these three things <coughs> that I believe is true. Hopefully, you are um, reflecting on what biblical lament is, how to to biblically lament, and hopefully, um, if you do these things, um, even in your pain, you will learn how to feel close to God. Right? Um, I've done this. As a matter of fact, I, I found one of my old journals, and I'm read, just read through it. And I'm just like, mm, you was bold to say that to God, <laughs> right? But 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 pour out your heart to Him, right? Um, now, wh- three things that I think we need to learn in order to suffer by faith, um, and I think that all three of these things can be found in the text of Job, right? in Job's life. And I think that if we learn how to do these things, we will be able to to better respond to suffering and pain when it comes into our life. So number one, right, this is number one, we starting over with how to learn how to suffer by faith, okay? Number one, you have to recognize that this is a lifelong journey. Recognize this is a lifelong journey. Three times in the first two chapters of Job, God says that Job was blameless, upright, feared God, and shunned evil. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 3. This did not occur in Job's life overnight. Job did not wake up one day and realized that he was blameless, upright, feared God, and shunned evil. Job made it his daily habit to fear God. That means that Job made it his daily habit to put God first in everything. Remember Proverbs chapter 3? Job put God first in everything, and because every single day of his life he spent time Checking God, what does God want in this? Put God first in every single thing, right? It made it easier and easier for Job to respond in a godly way, regardless of his circumstance. Every single day, Job woke up. How can I please the Lord? How can I put him first? How can I humble myself so that that I make God look good? And because he did that every single day, regardless of what came his way, he was able to respond in a godly way. But if we wait until we find ourselves in the circumstance, right? if we don't make this our daily practice of fearing God and putting him first, right? but we wait until we find ourselves in the circumstance, we won't have the spiritual muscle memory to complain biblically. We'll just find ourselves complaining. So, number one, you have to make your d- fear, the fear of the Lord, you have to make that your daily habit. You have to wake up every single moment, every single morning, asking yourself, how can I put God first? 
And when you wake up every day seeking to put God first, that will impact your character, right? Blameless means to be perfect, right? And to be upright means that that, that spiritual perfection, that godly character in his life spilled over in how he treated other people. And if we do that every single day, it'll become easier and easier for us to respond in godly ways when we go through things so that we can biblically complain in our circumstance. Number two, we must develop a lifestyle of worship. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. Job chapter 1, verse 20. After the servants came and told Job all that had happened uh, to his possessions, his servants, and his children, the first thing Job does, verse 20, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. So number two, we must develop a lifestyle of worship. Life will squeeze each one of us like a sponge. And when we are squeezed, who we really are and what we really trust in will always come out. Right? That, that's what happens. When, when, when we get squeezed, right, when we, when we get put into a, a, a tough situation, who we really are comes out. I was laughing. I, I was like, nope, I shouldn't, probably shouldn't do this. Uh, someone called me um, Friday. It was like, I got to confess to you about something. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and, and they said that uh, they were driving down the street and a, and a Baltimore City dump truck came in and, you know, tried to cut them off and stuff. And so they have this little back and forth. And so the person started cursing them out. And they were like, I was, I was holding my tongue. I didn't say anything. But when they called me the B word, I just lost it. And I gave them every word I knew. <laughs> and, like, and now I feel bad, like I just messed up my testimony. <laughs> okay. because, because when we get squeezed, who we really are and what we trust in comes out. <laughs> right? That, that's, just the way, <laughs> that's just the way life is. Now, but notice Job. When life squeezed Job, who Job was and what he depended on and what he trusted in came out. Right? Immediately upon hearing that he had lost all of his possessions, all of his servants, and all of his children, immediately he fell to the ground and worshipped. Job was, was, was so familiar with worshiping God. He was so familiar with being in God's presence that immediately upon being squeezed with pain and suffering, he fell back on the one thing he knew, God's presence. Like Job, we need to learn how to become most at home and at peace in God's presence. Worship renews the heart and adds perspective. 
No situation can seem too big when we have our eyes fixed on an infinite God. We have to learn how to worship. Worship cannot be the first 15 minutes of Sunday service. (laughs) We have to learn every single day how to wake up and spend time in God's presence. We have to learn how to extend God's presence throughout our entire day so that we live our entire lives as worship in God's presence. Great book on that is called The Imitation of Christ <laughs> by Thomas Akempis. Okay. No, I'm sorry. That's I'm I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Um wrong book. It's um Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Right. So he, um he was a monk and uh, he said that um his duties in the monastery was to do all of the dishes. And so but he wanted to spend time in God's presence. And so he learned how to worship God by washing dishes. And he said that he got so good at, 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 at worship and being in God's presence that he could be washing dishes, but be in the deepest worship he could experience. His whole life became worship. Number three, last one, and then I'm done. Number three, we have to learn how to roll with the punches. We have to learn how to roll with the punches. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. I think that this is all Job is saying. You got to learn how to roll with the punches. His wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Job says, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we not indeed accept good from God? And shall we not also accept adversity? We have to learn how to roll with the punches. Now, in chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. Now, in jujitsu, the first thing you learn how to do is fall properly. If you don't know how to hit the ground correctly, you're going to get injured. So the first thing they teach you is how to fall properly, right? We call this ukemi. And what you learn how to do is rolls and break falls. We spend a lot of time learning how to land on the ground when you get thrown. We literally spend time practicing how to hit the ground. Did not make sense to me when when I first started. I'm like, can you just show me how to punch somebody? (laughs) Okay. But no, you you have to learn how to hit the ground properly. We also learn and practice rolling. So, for example, we practice being shoved from behind or being knocked to the ground by surprise. And what you do is you learn to tumble over, land on your feet, and turn back into a fighting stance, right? You, you learn, literally learn how to roll with the punches. You get hit from behind, you tumble over, you turn on your feet and back into a fighting stance because you don't get to control the circumstances under which you fight. You just got to roll with the punches. And I think that this is exactly what Job is telling us here. What we are trying to learn in Job, as well as in jujitsu, 
is that we have to practice how to be caught off guard by our circumstances without becoming a victim of our circumstances. That's true in the physical world. It's true in the, in the spiritual world. Spiritually speaking, we have to learn how to roll with the punches or to say it differently, whatever God sends our way, our faith in God needs to be strong enough that we are mentally and emotionally able to roll with the punches and not be broken. We have to learn to be spiritually flexible. That if, if God sends good into our lives, that's great. We worship him, we praise him, we honor him, we love him. But when God sends adversity into our lives, that's great. We love him, we honor him, we respect him, we cry, we wrestle with him, but we aren't broken. I think that Job chapter 3 is a perfect ob object lesson on learning how to depend on God in times of trouble. Like Job, we must learn to be brutally honest with God. Right? I heard someone say before, God is 21 plus. <laughs> right? uh, he can handle anything you got to say to him. Okay? We have to learn how to be brutally honest with God. It is okay to complain to him. We need to learn how to pour out our hearts to him, to wrestle with him, and still hold on to him and his promises, even when we're hurting. Job was able to do this because it was already a part of his spiritual DNA. All of us will find ourselves in the place of suffering, and when we do, I pray that we all will have done the necessary work of daily fearing God and allowing him to impress his character upon our lives so we are not tempted to defame him. That's all I think chapter 3 is saying. Okay. Job poured out his heart to God. He wrestled with God, but he did not turn his back on God. He suffered by faith. He wrestled with God by faith. And the lesson for us is that we have to learn to do the same thing. And it starts with us learning how to lament well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be able to read chapters like this in the Bible. Um, if it were up to us, we would all uh, eliminate chapters like this in the Bible because we would create a world where there's no pain. <laughs> And yet, Lord, it's not reality. Every single one of us will suffer. Every single one of us will go through some form of pain. All of us will find ourselves in circumstances that we do not want to be in. And every single one of us will have a test to pass or fail in those circumstances. Will we stay committed to you and trusting you by faith? Or will we curse you to your face, as Satan said? I pray, Lord, that when we find ourselves in those circumstances, that we will have done the hard work of daily making it our habit to fear you, and that we will have learned well to biblically complain or to lament to you and take our deep hurt and pain to you. 
so we can wrestle with you in our pain and yet still hold on to your promises. I pray, Lord, that you would keep working your character in us, your steadfastness, your faithfulness. Work these qualities in us, even in our pain, so that we will never defame you or turn our back from you or just pretend to be spiritual while feeling distant from you. Help us to close the gap emotionally with you. Knowing that you allow us to go through these circumstances for reasons that we don't know, but help us to trust you and to trust your wisdom that you know what's best for us. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to work our way through the book of Job, that we won't just see a man who lived thousands of years ago, but we will see ourselves in each one of uh, these chapters and that we will learn to suffer with you by faith. We thank you now for all your many blessings, especially for your word. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.